Distraction itself, I would say, tends to not be on its own effective for precisely the reasons you are you're describing. So, right. you know, let's say I'm rejected by someone and I go to the movies. In a previous universe, you could go to the movies um, <laughs> to get your mind off something. So let's say I go to the movies and it's a really good movie. You know, I feel better temporarily, but then I get out of the movie theater and I'm reminded of the experience and all the negative emotions come back. So distraction on its own tends to not be so productive. It's a form of avoidance. What distancing does that's useful is it's getting you to step back in order to then move forward. It's like stepping back to move forward. Mm. You're stepping back so that you could then weigh in more objectively without getting stuck and mirroring the problem. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobes. And I think we all have a basic understanding that many of the issues that arise in our lives are a result of our inability to control and manage the voice in our head. And not only does this create problems, our ability to solve these problems strongly relies on how we use our thoughts and inner voice in these moments. They can either be used to our advantage and help us grow or to our disadvantage where they become quote unquote chatter. And chatter is when the inner voice becomes toxic and destructive. It's when we ruminate. It's when we obsess. And before we know it, we are acting impulsively and making decisions that are not aligned with who we want to become. And this leads to turmoil in our lives that can damage our health, that can damage our career. It can ruin relationships and even hurt our sense of self if we are not careful. But there is good news. There is a path forward. And after listening to today's episode, you will have multiple tools that you can implement immediately to harness your inner voice, mitigate chatter, and use your thoughts to improve your life. Today's guest is Ethan Cross. Ethan is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind and the inner voice. He is an award-winning professor in the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and its Ross School of Business. Ethan studies how the conversations people have with themselves impact their health, their performance, their decisions, and their relationships. And Ethan is also the best-selling author of the newly released book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It, which we will talk about on today's podcast. On today's podcast, Ethan delivers an absolute masterclass on the conscious mind, on emotion regulation, our inner voice, and our thoughts, and how to manage all this. What I value about Ethan's approach is that it's simple, it's proactive, and anyone can do it. There's no equipment, financial investment, or massive time commitment required. Part of his solution to harnessing your inner voice is practicing things like distancing yourself from the situation, practicing distant self-talk, creating rituals in your life, and controlling the environment around you. Ethan also covers a few tactics that you may think work for controlling our negative thoughts that are actually counterproductive. This is a discussion that goes into great detail into what your inner voice is, how it's different from chatter, and why talking to yourself is actually healthy. 
We also get into how to quote unquote, hold space for someone in a way that will help them move forward and why running to social media to share your problems isn't always the best approach. So this episode helps you manage chatter in the present moments as well as the future and ultimately will assist you in letting the voice in your head become your greatest ally. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Ethan Cross to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Me too. And, you know, before we recorded, I was saying to you how much your work fascinates me. You're one of the the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. You run an emotion and self-control lab at the University of Michigan. And you have this incredible book called Chatter, where you go into all things, how to like all on unpacking and, and learning about the inner voice inside of us and how to harness it in a way that it serves us and doesn't destroy us. Because I think a lot of times what happens is that that inner voice can lead to self-destructive patterns. It can lead to turmoil like you talk about, but it can also be our greatest asset and greatest ally. So I think a great place for us to start is we hear a lot about the importance of our thoughts and how they can become words and turn into actions. And we hear a lot about the mind and mindset and why it's important. What I would like to know is from your perspective as a scientist, like what is chatter? What is the inner voice and why is it so important to pay attention to? Great question. So, so let's start with the inner voice because that's really the broadest concept that we're going to be talking about here. When I use the term inner voice, what I'm really talking about is silently using language to think about things that are happening in our life. We talk to other people using language. It turns out we also talk to ourselves using language. We do this a lot. Uh, And there are a variety of ways that we can do so. So at one end of the spectrum, we use our inner voice to keep nuggets of, of information active in our heads. So if I were to ask you to memorize a phone number and to do it silently. So repeat the following number, Doug, 2090501. Can you do that for me? Yep. Yep. Okay. Congratulations. You have just used your your inner voice and now you know my childhood phone number. So I've been giving that number out to a lot of people. So I hope they're not getting pranked. What I've just asked you to do is use what we call your verbal working memory system. This is a, a system of the human mind that allows us to keep information active in our heads. And we use it all the time. And your inner voice helps us do that right? We, we use this verbal working memory to remember our to-dos, the things we have to do. We use our verbal memory when we're just engaged in a conversation where I'm trying to keep active in my head what you just said to me. I'm using working memory. So it's absolutely vital to our ability to, to navigate the world. And the inner voice factors into it. So we use our inner voice for that, but we also use it to do lots of other things like to simulate and plan. So before I give a big talk, I'm often rehearsing what I'm going to say. In my head, I'm saying what I'm going to tell the audience. And, and then after I finish talking in my head, I'm imagining what the audience member, what question they're going to ask me. It's often a very obnoxious question. I'm simulating the worst case scenario. And then I'm responding to their question. Interestingly enough, the way I respond is, is usually not what I would do in reality. It has a more of a movie kind of superhero flair to it, but, but that's my inner voice. It's helping me do that. We use our inner voice to coach ourselves through problems. Like when we're working on a hard task, put your foot here, don't put it there. And, and most magical of all, we use this inner voice to, to really create a sense of our identity, our sense of who we are. So things happen in our lives that we don't really understand 
them experience. I'm rejected. I'm insulted. Why did that happen? What does that mean about me? What does that say about this other person? We use our inner voice to create these stories that help us understand who we are. Mm. So those are all the positive attributes, the positive sides of the inner voice. I like to think of it as a kind of Swiss army knife of the mind. It's an incredibly, incredibly valuable tool, but there is a negative side to the inner voice too. And that's what chatter is. Chatter is what happens is what happens when we experience a problem and we turn our attention inward to try to make sense of that problem, to try to work through it, right? So let's try to figure out why did this happened. But rather than coming up with a clear solution, we end up ruminating and worrying and catastrophizing. We get, end up getting stuck in a negative cycle of thinking and feeling that can make life, for lack of a better term, miserable. And, and it's a huge problem. Chatter is something that can influence our ability to think and perform while at work. It can create friction in our relationships with other people. And it can, can undermine our physical health. And it's an example of our inner voice run, aro- run awry. And the, the final thing I'll say is, if you think about the inner voice as a tool, just think about how do tools work. Think about a hammer. A hammer can be an amazingly useful tool. We use it to build homes and do all sorts of marvelous things. But in the wrong hands, if we use a hammer the wrong way, i.e. if I'm using a hammer, because I'm not a very handy guy, (laughs) it can be a massive source of destruction. And I think that scaffolds really nicely on to what we know about how the inner voice functions can be marvelously useful, but also quite destructive. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all that. I think you just gave a very um, simple overview of the inner voice and chatter and the, the great things it can do. And as well as the negative things it can do in a, in a short amount of time. And I think I appreciate you you doing that because you're right. I think there's so many great things that can come from our inner voice, the visualization, the planning, thinking about how you're going to achieve something, you know, guiding yourself when you're trying to complete a task. But I would argue that, or I would say that the people that have that point down aren't the ones that are probably going to want to listen to this podcast because they're like, you know, I've already got that. They're not the ones having the problems. I think the people who are really needing to hear this right now is the majority of people and those that inner voice, those thoughts turn to chatter and people self-destruct, they self-implode and it destroys their lives just from their, their inability to harness that voice. So what do you think causes people's inability to manage these thoughts, the inner voice? I know you've said in your book that childhood can play a role in it. Do you think that people's environment plays a role? Do you think people, the way the people they surround themselves with can impact how they talk to themselves? Or do you think it's just like randomly and it's genetic? No, you know, it's a great question and we don't know all the answers. We don't have all the answers to this question yet. The question being what predisposes some people to experience chatter more than others. We know that there's, there's like with most things, when it comes to the mind, genes play a role, environments do as well. And, and those genes and environments, actually, they can interact. So there's some really interesting data coming out showing how being in certain kinds of environments, having certain kinds of social experiences can actually influence how our DNA is expressed. So experiencing chronic stress, for example, living in an underprivileged area that's dangerous for a long period of time, or there are lots of ways you could get a chronic stress reaction, has been linked with an the increased expression of genes that that have this, well, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for the term here, using my inner voice. Inflammation genes can turn on certain kinds of inflammation genes and turn off certain kinds of antiviral genes. 
inflammation up, virus fighting genes down, not a good formula for well-being. And so we're, we're still learning so much about how genes and environments come together. We know that early life experiences can certainly shape how we talk to ourselves. The, the, our caretakers, you know, they, they give us instructions when we're young and that their voices can get inside of our heads and influence how we talk to ourselves. We, off, we also, as kids, influence our, our caregivers too. The, the direction goes both ways, which is something that we don't often talk about, but data bears that out. So we're exquisitely sensitive to our surroundings, our friends, our cultures, and they I like to use the idea of tuning. They tune how we talk to ourselves, but it's very flexible. To, to bring it back to the demographic that you just mentioned, though, that is likely listening here, folks who are struggling with chatter, you know, I, I, there, there's one big message that I want to convey, which is I've met a lot of people who are struggling with chatter over the course of my career and while writing this book. And oftentimes what I hear is this desire to just turn that voice off in my head. I don't want to hear anything. I just want silence, quiet. The data don't suggest that that is what we actually want to achieve. What we want to do is reduce the chatter, the negative side of the inner voice, but then allow the positive side of that inner voice to come into play. So it's really the equation is how can we get rid of the bad stuff right? And that's going to feel good just because we're, we're worrying less, we're ruminating less, we're catastrophizing less. Let's bring that down. But let's not stop there. Let's not just stop by quieting the, the chatter. Then let's start accentuating, let's start capitalizing on, on this inner voice and allowing it to do what in a certain sense it evolved to do, which is allow us to, to problem solve, innovate, and create. And so the real challenge, I think, is about harnessing this inner voice. It's not about silencing it. Yeah. I mean, I think life's a dance between being able to mitigate the, the negative self-talk and then embracing the positive self-talk and like lowering and controlling and harnessing that negative is so much so that the positive can get in and then it helps you take action towards a goal you're trying to achieve instead of focusing on the negative and that pulls you even further away from the goal. I mean, you, you alluded to the example in the book of Rick, Rick and Keel, who's self-talk served him for a long time. I mean, you don't make it to the big leagues as a pitcher without having some sense of good self-talk, right? And then it completely self-destructed him. And you see it time and time again with people. I mean, I look at it just from just the average human being. What happens when they experience a negative event? They start talking down to themselves. They say, you're a piece of shit. You suck. Why'd you do that? And then it goes on and on and on. And they focus so much on the problem and what happened instead of what they can do to move forward and the solution, which I know you say is the way out. I want to go back to childhood real quick while we're here, because there was something fascinating to me that you wrote about in the book. And it's something that's very, like, very like hot right now is this notion of going back to our childhood to heal from traumatic experiences so that, you know, an example, an example would be if you had a bad childhood, there's a lot of talk right now saying you got to go back and address the root cause of the trauma. You got to go back to your childhood to move through that. But what you've said is there's not a lot of science to back that up. So what would you advise people to do instead of that? Well, you know, there are lots of different empirically supported interventions ranging from CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, to different psychodynamic approaches, lots of different modalities that have been shown to be effective. If the, you know, the cognitive approach, which is one that I'm, I'm steeped in, according to that 
philosophy, if there's something that is recurring in awareness that's bothering you, then there are things you can do to manage it. There are coping strategies you can use to address the the kinds of thoughts you're experiencing and nip them in the bud. There, in some cases, are, are you might want to re-expose yourself to to memories that are haunting you to so that you you learn that they're not something that you need to be afraid of. But the idea that we need to carte blanche across the board, go back into our past to address these root causes of problems. That's not an idea that, at least as far as I'm aware, has has a lot of evidence behind it. That's an old, older style approach that, yeah, can can sometimes actually do some harm. So because you allude to in the book that when anybody is reliving or venting about negative emotions or negative experiences, it just puts them in a completely different frame of mind that can actually just have them focusing on the problem instead of focusing on the, the way out or the solution to help them grow and use that experience to better themselves. Is, is that the idea? So let's say there's something that's bothering you. What you want to do is you do want to activate that experience that's bugging you. And if it happened in the past, then you do want to go into the past to think about that event, but then you want to reframe. You want to change the way you think about the experience to improve the way you feel. Our memories of experiences are, are labile. We can change we can augment our memories. And if a memory is causing us a lot of problems, there are ways of reframing how we think about that experience that can be quite helpful. That's different though than than going back in time and bathing yourself in the negative experience and suggesting Mm. that everyone who's experiencing negativity needs to do that. There There are moments in time where that might be appropriate, but it's not something that's a one size fits all for everyone. Mm, yeah, got it. That, that makes total sense. So I want to get into the chatter in harnessing the inner voice. And I think what I want to do is kind of take it more step by step, because I think that the first step, at least in my understanding, is developing some sense of awareness to know like how, how do you, how does one know that they're processing something instead of ruminating? How does somebody know if they're just their inner voice is just talking to them versus chatter and they're heading down this destructive path? Is there like a time where someone talks, you know, spends thinking about something that you've seen that people are like, okay, now I'm in the chatter phase. Like how does somebody know if they're actually in that chatter, those chatter moments and so that they can take that next step to move through it in a way that's conducive for, to, for the person they want to become and get better. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Paleo Valley. I think I have found a new addiction, and that's the Paleo Valley Beef Sticks. When I first came across these, I was honestly quite skeptical, being that most beef sticks are highly processed, unhealthy, and gross. But after trying the ones from Paleo Valley, I was instantly sold, not just for the taste, but because they are grass-finished, grass-fed, and fermented. Plus, the company is family-owned and accessible, which seals the deal for me. So many people ask, how can I get more protein in my diet when I don't have the time? Paleo Valley has you covered with their high-quality beef sticks. I have even been recommending them to my personal training clients. They come in many flavors, but personally, I am digging the summer sausage and teriyaki. So if you'd like to give one of the best healthy snacks on the market a try, go to paleovalley.com and when you enter in the code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Again, it's paleovalley.com. And when you enter in the code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, first of all, I think just understanding what chatter is can be very effective. So just knowing, oh, if I'm finding myself thinking about the same thing over and over and I'm not progressing and it's causing me distress, then you know you're experiencing chatter. It really is as simple as that. And so it really is a sense of stagnation where we feel stuck. We're not finding a solution. We're, we're not feeling better. And once you, I, I, you know, I, so step one is being able to just realize that when you're having that experience, there are things that you can do to then augment it, to change that experience, to, to shorten it so you don't continue down that path. One of the really troubling things with chatter is people get stuck in chatter it's like a good intention run, run, run awry, right? We're motivated to feel better. Most people don't want to be miserable. They don't want to be anxious right. and sad. They want to feel better. And they're, they're focusing their attention on their, their feelings to try to come up with a solution to do that, to feel better. But every time they focus on the problem, it makes them feel worse. Well, let me try to figure out, well, why am I feeling so? Well, because what if this happens? What if that happens? So, they're feeling bad, but they're still motivated to feel better. So what do they do? They keep on focusing on the problem, which keeps it alive, but they're still motivated. So they keep on pushing and pushing and pushing. That's in part why this experiencing chatter for long periods of time could be really draining. It's burdensome because you keep on, you know, you're running on that exercise wheel on that treadmill and you're not getting anywhere. And so recognizing what chatter is, very, very useful. And then once you have that recognition, that, that's when you want to start taking steps to intervene, to nip the response in the bud, so to speak. Right. So if somebody started to have that inner voice kind of take over, it leads to chatter, they're ruminating, they're focusing on the problem, trying to problem solve. But what it's really doing is just distancing themselves further away from the solution because they're just so caught up in that cycle of the problem. And they think because they're thinking about it, longer and longer that it's actually serving them and they're going to find a solution and they really don't. What's the science say that's, that's useful for when people are in these moments that they can, they're able to kind of take a step back and move through it in a way that's going to actually move them towards a solution and not stuck in that same toxic pattern. Well, the first thing to, to be aware of is that there are a boatload of things that you can do. There's no single magic pill. Right. And I think it's a really important point to convey because we're often looking for magic bullets, magic pill, silver bullets, magic pills. I always confuse those two terms, right, right. but they don't exist as far as I'm aware. And instead, what we know is that we have evolved to possess a variety of tools. I think I talk about 26 or so in the book. Yeah. And you don't just use one tool at a time. Many people report using combinations of tools to manage themselves. One category of tools involve doing exactly what you just hinted at, which is they help us step back from our experience. When we experience chatter, we, we zoom in really narrowly on the problem at hand, tunnel vision. What's the issue? And we focus so narrowly on the problem, we often can't get a broader perspective, which can often reveal alternative ways of thinking about that problem that might make us feel better. And so there are lots of, of things we could do when we're zoomed in too tightly to, to step back and think about the experience more objectively in ways that can be useful. One tool that, that I use a lot is something called distant self-talk. I try to give myself advice like I was giving advice to a friend or loved one. And I actually, I use language to help me do that. And what I mean by that is actually... I'll coach myself through a problem using my own name. All right, Ethan, how are you going to deal with this? Here's what you're going to do. What that does is by using my own name, that 
automatically shifts my perspective. Most of the time that we use names, we use them when we're thinking about and referring to other people. So when I use my, my name to refer to myself, right, it's just automatic. It's like a psychological jujitsu move. It's, it's switching the way I think about myself. And now it's like I'm advising someone else. And we know from lots and lots of research that it is much easier for us to give advice to others than it is to take our own advice. Yeah. So that's one thing you can do. Well, um, I'm just going to butt in really quick and say, I think there's so much power when you hear your own name too, because it's like, yeah. you remember who you are, you remember your identity. And it's just like, I don't know, there's something magical, I think. And especially like, at least for me, when I, I say my name, or I'm like, come on, Doug, you got this. Yeah. There's something in your mind that goes off. It's like, you know what you do? Like, don't forget who you are. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And you know, it's so distant self-talk, which we've done a bunch of research on. It's such a fascinating phenomenon to me because you see instances of people do this, doing this throughout time unknowingly. I mean, like, let's be, let's be straight with one another. It sounds a little hokey to talk to yourself using your own name, right? Like, so if that's the case, though, why, why did Julius Caesar write an entire book about his previous conquests using his own name? Why did Malala Yousafzai, the youngest person ever win the Nobel Peace Prize, when she found out that the Taliban were plotting to assassinate her, why did she coach herself through her fear using her own name? Come on. All right. Here's what you're going to do, Malala, if they come and get you. Why does LeBron James and Jennifer Lawrence and countless others do this? I think people stumble onto this tool somehow as they live their lives and they discover that it's useful. And what the science suggests that it is, the science suggests that it, it is indeed helpful. But Importantly, it's just one, one of many, many things people can do. So just to give you one other example of a distancing technique, one that I think is particularly useful in the context of the pandemic, you could do something called temporal distancing. So when I think about the pandemic and, and how awful it is right now, that doesn't make me feel very good. I can end up experiencing a little chatter. And one way to counteract that is to think travel in time in my head and think about how am I going to feel six months from now? when we reach herd immunity and everyone's vaccinated, we're back to life as usual. When I engage in that mental time travel, when I get that temporal distance, I get, I'm getting distance in time from, from what I'm feeling right now. That makes it clear that what I'm experiencing right now is temporary. It'll soon pass. And that gives me hope. And that's a powerful bomb for the inner voice. And so that's another very easy to use distancing tool that folks can use. Yeah, because I think going back to talking to ourselves and the and the name thing, traditionally, I think there's been a lot of association with talking to yourself and being like severely mentally ill, right? Yeah. And I think from what you said and you wrote about in your book, there's a lot of correlation to, between like the more you talk to yourself as a kid, the more emotionally developed you are. It supports like your well-being, you're more emotionally healthy, you're more likely to succeed in life. And you talk a lot about that. And, and going from that point to the next thing I want to talk to you about is, is distance seems to be something that's very common in your book. You talk about creating distance in relationships. You talk about imagining you're, you're talking to your best friend in the situation, not yourself. You talk about ta having your kid envision that they're a superhero in a stressful situation to get through it and, and calm the mind. Like, like from a neurological perspective, what do you think it is about creating distance that makes that's so successful in dealing with your emotions? Yeah, a great, great question. Before I answer it though, let me just weigh in on the, the who talks to themselves bit because yeah, yeah. the associations with psychopathology, because I think it's an interesting point and it's one that, that you know, I want to address direct. Talking to yourself out loud and in public 
can be a sign of of mental illness. Like we all we we, we may slip into that as ah god damn it I made a yeah. wrong turn. You know, like we all I think that's very common. But when you're having a full blown conversation with yourself while walking down the streets of Manhattan, that can sometimes be an indicator of something amiss. Uh, doesn't mean that you're ill, but it can be a sign. But with respect to talking to ourselves silently, you know, I would argue that we're in various ways, we're all doing that throughout our lives. And so we're engaging in that self-talk. So it's a lot more common, but it's happening silently. It's a private experience. So we're not aware of it. And one reason for writing the book was really to, to, to normalize that experience and bring it to life. With respect to why distance can often be very useful, and it certainly does characterize a lot of the tools I talk about, this ability to step back and weigh in once you're from that more distance perspective. The reason is because chatter is, is defined by the very opposite response, zooming in too narrowly. So we are so zoomed in right? We, we're losing perspective. So the idea is that the natural antidote to that is to step back and gain some, a broader perspective on the experience. So we're trying to work against directly what's driving the chatter response. What we see happening in the brain when this happens is there's, there's a network of brain regions that become activated when we are thinking about ourselves and our problems. This is a, a brain network that is more active among folks who are clinically anxious or depressed than those who aren't. It's more active when you induce people in the context of experiments to ruminate about a problem. And what we find is that when you have people distance, the activation level of that network decreases, it declines, it normalizes. And so there's evidence from a lot of different levels of analysis, the brain, behavior, cognition, that these distancing tools can be useful. So once you create distance and you're in this, this phase of chatter, is there certain types of words somebody should be saying to themselves that can impact the brain in a way that's positive versus negative? Like do words matter in these situations or is it just the distance that matters? Well, it, so once you distance, step back, there are lots of things you can do once you step back. In the studies that I talk about in the book, people step back with a particular goal in mind, a particular mindset, which is to try to work through their problems. And, and, and I, we focus on those kinds of mindsets or motivations because I think that's what most people, that's what gets people stuck in rumination to be, or chatter to begin with, right? They're trying to make sense of these. They're trying to feel better but they're not able to accomplish those goals. So what we do is we, we maintain that motivation when people step back and then ask them, okay, now try to make sense of this experience, work through it, come up with a solution. You can imagine asking a person to distance and then do other things like let's step back and avoid thinking about the problem altogether. That wouldn't be a good thing. I think that would be probably harmful and counterproductive because you would be ignoring the problem. And we know avoidance can be bad. You could distance yourself to become completely unemotional about something. And that might be bad too, right? Lead us to, to do things that maybe are, are unethical. So we're talking about distancing in a very particular context, in a particular way to help people feel better. Yeah, I, th I think from what I'm getting from you is the idea is that once you're in this, this phase of chatter, you're ruminating, you're, you're heightened, you're anxious, you're stressed, whatever it is, to bring that down, mitigate that, distance yourself, and then figure out like a plan B of how you're going to move towards a solution and not stay in that moment. 
And I think one of the other examples you use is being distracted. You talked about like when I think when you're experiencing chatter, you're stuck on something, you'll go do the dishes. And I think it, it helps to helps you to kind of t- practice the pause, if you will take some time, let your, your mind go where it's intended to focus on something else and then move back to it. But I think there, it can have a double-edged sword because I think what happens when people become distracted is they become more distracted. They end up forgetting what it is that they need to, to focus on or do to begin with. So what advice do you have for someone who like, say they're, they're heightened. We see this all the time. They get into a fight with their partner and they're incredibly, their emotions are elevated and they want to go do something to get their mind off the situation. So they go for a walk, they go do their dishes or something. What advice do you have for someone to be able to not only get through that, those emotions in a healthy way, but to make sure they're coming back to the task at hand and addressing the problem? Yeah. So great questions. Distraction itself, I would say tends to not be on its own effective for precisely the reasons you are, you're describing. So right you know, let's say I'm rejected by someone and I go to the movies in a previous universe, you could go to the movies uh, <laughs> to get your mind off something. So let's say I go to the movies and it's a really good movie. You know, I feel better temporarily, but then I get out of the movie theater and I'm reminded of the experience and all the negative emotions come back. So distraction on its own tends to not be so productive. It's a form of avoidance. What distancing does that's useful is it's getting you to step back in order to then move forward. It's like stepping back to move forward. Mm. You're stepping back so that you could then weigh in more objectively without getting stuck and mirroring the problem. We're often really good at weighing in on other people's problems. Like I, I, I think many of us do this all the time. Friends come to us with problems. We give them our advice and we move on. And the idea is how can you help yourself in, how can you do that for yourself, right? How can you deal with the situations, the curveballs that life throws at us You take the pitch, you deal with it, you strike out or you hit it, but either way, you move on because getting stuck, replaying that sequence over and over doesn't help. Now, you mentioned other things that people can do that are effective, like going for a walk in nature, cleaning the dishes. I'd argue that those aren't just distractions, but the reason that those are effective, and I talk about this in in the book, is they activate other chatter fighting pathways. So take Take doing the dishes. I'm not the neatest guy by any means, but when I'm experiencing a blip of chatter, I will do something odd and out of character for me, which is I will tidy up my office and I will do the dishes and scrub down the island. And what's happening there, and and I should say that that helps me feel better. It helps me deal with the chatter. When we're experiencing chatter, we often feel like we don't have control of our thoughts. They're running the show these things in our head, not us, right? And they're causing us to feel upset. And that can be really, that can be a disorienting and uncomfortable experience. What we've learned is we can compensate for the lack of control we feel in our head by exerting control around us. So if I'm ordering my environment, like that's me, I'm in charge, I'm putting things in order. And that gives us a sense of order and a feeling of being in control that can be really useful and make us feel better. This is why Rafael Nadal, you know, reports engaging in elaborate rituals before he plays every tennis match. You know, he he said in an interview, the hardest thing he struggles to do on the tennis court is battle the voices inside his head. Crazy, right? Like this is, this guy's playing against the world's best, best athletes. And what he struggles with is his own head. And what he does to deal with that experience is he does these elaborate rituals, these very structured sequences of behaviors. And he says, controlling my world around me helps me control the chaos in my head. 
So that's how tidying up can help. Walking in nature can be another really useful tool. One thing that that does is it, it, when we're walking in like a safe, natural space, it captures our attention without us having to work really hard. So it's not like we're working on a hard math problem. We're just gently fascinated by the beautiful world around us. And, and, and that's a way of, of recharging, essentially, after the rumination battle has taken place, which can feel so exhausting. And that can be useful for, for replenishing our, our attention to help, us, to help us combat chatter with other tools once we're done. Looks like you wanted to ask something. Well, I was just going to say, so would you say that these rituals creating something, is that a proactive way to set yourself up to be able to harness the inner voice and, and mitigate yeah. chatter as much as you can? Yeah, totally. I think this is why a lot of teams have these rituals that they engage in before games, you know, on the free throw line, on the golf course. These are tools that that are being leveraged proactively to manage these kinds of experiences. And I would say that I would argue that for people, not argue, but I would say that people listening, if you're listening to this, rituals don't have to be anything insane, right? I think some great rituals to help harness the chatter, improve your response to stress, managing your emotions or things like exercise. Yeah. Keeping a gratitude journal, you know, hanging out with people regularly that bring the best out in you, keeping some sense of spirituality that works for you, reading books or something that you can focus on that you can control that that you, you're bettering yourself so that when life does happen and and things are, you know, you get stressed, you're exposing yourself to either stressful situations when you're in the gym or you're running or whatever it is. And you're practicing your ability to to manage your emotions and control, re- respond to the thoughts that come in your head in a way that's as healthy as possible. Yeah, I mean, the, the key defining feature of a ritual, as it as at least in the science and the literature, is it, it's a it's a sequence of behaviors that have meaning that you do the same way each time. And so anything could fit in there as long as it follows that structure. There are, of course, other kinds of rituals like cultural rituals, religious rituals that that can also be useful. And some of those may have added value because you're often doing them with other people. So there's a sense of social connection that they bring. They often elicit like the experience of awe, which can be useful too. But there are lots of different kinds of rituals that that can be helpful. Mm. I want to pivot into emotions and control. I think as humans, we we want to be able to control everything, right? We want to be able to have tons of certainty in life and make sure everything's going to go the way as planned. And I know that you and I have talked before we, re- we recorded and you were saying, you know, you can't really control your thoughts. Like you're always, you might always think about a certain person or certain thing. Like you can't just tell your mind to stop thinking about it, but you said you can have some sense of control over your emotions. So yes. what are some ways that people can learn to control and manage their emotions when they're heightened, when they're stressed, so that it doesn't lead them down more self-destructive patterns. Yeah. So, well, well, I think a lot of the tools I talk about in the book are right. emotion regulation tools that can be very useful. When I'm, you know, when I'm when I'm spinning out and chatter, 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 you know, over the pandemic, and I, I, I do temporal distancing. I think about how many until six months now. That helps me rein in an emotion. That's controlling an emotion. When I find someone to talk to about an experience that's really skilled at not only empathically connecting with me, but also giving me the big picture, they're helping cool me down. That's another way of managing my emotions. When I do a ritual because I'm, I'm anxious about something, when I wash the dishes and clean up, 
that's helping me manage my emotions. So I think we as human beings are are absolutely capable of controlling our feelings, of modulating them, of reining them in. We can, we can make ourselves feel less angry, less anxious, less sad, plug in the negative emotion you want. We can also do things to amplify positive experiences too. Like right. think about an experience hanging out with my kids and where we had tons of fun at the beach and you know, lots of things we can do. What's trickier to do is, is as you said before, to try to control the thoughts that just randomly pop up into our heads. If that's your goal, you're setting a really high bar for success because I don't know of any tools that exist to actually, you know, make sure you're never going to experience that dark thought or that, you know, a memory of this person or that. But but once the thoughts are activated and driving emotions, there's a whole toolbox of of techniques that we that we have at our disposal to to control ourselves. So you would say that all the tools you mentioned in your book for dealing with the toxic thoughts and chatter are interchangeable with things like anxiety, heightened levels of emotion, stress, that sort of thing? Well, yeah, there's some. So, so chatter is, is what we call transdiagnostic risk factor for many different kinds of experiences. Uh, so what that means is you see chatter fueling both rage as well as anxiety as well as depression and so a lot of these tools do work for many of these different kinds of emotional responses but there are also question marks about like you know there are lots of different kinds of emotional experiences we can have and there's no question that the various tools i talked about in the book have not been studied in the context of every possible emotional experience so so the real challenge i think that readers face and that scientists face too is there's more experimentation that needs to happen Readers can do this on their own, self-experimenting. Scientists are doing this in the lab where we're trying to see not only how do different tools work with different kinds of emotions, but critically, how do these different tools combine? What are the the chatter-fighting cocktails? And I hesitate to use the word cocktail here, but yeah. we often take cocktails for, for as an avoidance of <laughs> some of these things. But, but you know, you think about drug regimens to combat different kinds of physical disorders like heart disease. There are cocktails that we pres- we prescribe, right? Like you take four or five different medications. And my sense is that my intuition is that it's combinations are of, of several tools that people are going to find maximally effective for helping them manage chatter in their lives. And you got to figure out which of the tools that work best for you. I want to dive into one that is used by a lot of people but you've said it's kind of one that can kind of get you in trouble and that's bent that's venting or expressing yourself to other people. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there's probably some sense of fine line between emotional dumping where you're just talking to somebody for a few hours about your problems and you're not really getting to a solution and having an approach where you're talking to somebody about your, your issues, your problems, and you're together with that person potentially working towards a path forward or a solution. Yeah. So what are some ways that people can express themselves in a healthy way? Because I think it's still important to talk totally. to somebody when you're struggling and not, and make sure that they're, that they're not leading down that path of just emotional dumping or venting and not getting towards a solution. Yeah. So we often hear that venting is the route to feeling better about chatter provoking events. And there's been a lot of studies that look, look at this over the years and the data don't support that. So if you and let's say, you know, you and I are now buds, I have a problem, I call you up and I just unload. 
What that does is it makes you and I feel really close and connected. And so there is research showing that having people in your life that you can just express your emotions to, that, that strengthens friendship bonds, creates close social connections. But if all I do is tell you about what's bothering me and all you do is get me to dig deeper into this, oh man, what, what did that host say on the podcast? And you said, what? I can't believe it. You know, we just ping pong back and forth. It's like throwing logs on a burning flame. You're just mm. keeping the negative emotions active. What the best kinds of conversations do is they actually do two things. Let's say I'm seeking out advice from, or let's say I'm, I'm approaching someone else because I want help. I want to stop experiencing this chatter that's driving me nuts. Ideally, the person I find to talk to does let me express myself to a certain degree. It feels good to know that there's someone there who cares enough about me to listen, to validate my experience. And, and the other person needs to, of course, learn about what I went through to be able to help. But after letting me talk a little bit about my emotions, at a certain point in that exchange, they start nudging me to go broader. So let's say you came to me with a problem. I learned about what happened to you. And at one point, I'd be like, hey, hey well, you might, like, well, I've been in that situation. Here's how I've de dealt with it. Or, Doug, you've interviewed countless professors and, and, and other folks, and you must have had obnoxious people on the show. How'd you deal with it in the past? And you know, how long did it bother you? So what I'm doing there is I'm trying to nudge you to broaden your perspective, mm. to try to help you manage the chatter. So I'm not only letting you express, but I'm also trying to be that perspective broadener. And so it's folks that can do both of those things that can both let you talk a little bit about what you're feeling. So they do let you express, but then they try to help you problem solve and shift your perspective. That's the route for effective social support when it comes to chatter. It's not venting alone. And, and I guess that also goes for social media too, that you see a lot of people, they use social media to display their chatter, to display their inner voice and vent. And if they get into a fight with somebody or they get passionate about something that's going on, they just go right to social media. That's their, that's their first level of yeah. defense, right? Is that how can that be destructive and what's a, what's a good alternative for that? Is it journaling? Is it going for a walk in those moments versus just going right to social media? Yeah, I think, you know, so social media is fascinating, right? Because it can be, it can both provide us with opportunities to get support when it comes to chat. We've got all these friends and these networks who are in a position to advise us, but it can also get us into lots of trouble. Like when we say things on social media that we regret, we shouldn't have posted and it's out there forever. Or when we're uh, aggressive and, and bully other people, cyberbullying and trolling. So a couple of things to keep in mind. The first thing is when we experience intense emotions, which tend to characterize chatter, we are strongly motivated to share those experiences with others, to talk about them. Um, that's true for most negative experiences, not all, but for most. And you know, this, this device I have here, this little smartphone and social media, they let they provide us with this, this opportunity to express ourselves in the immediate aftermath of a negative emotion being triggered. And, and that can be dangerous because one of the things we know about time is that time, as time goes on, our emotions tend to subside. So in the real world, if we went to like the pre-social media, pre-smartphone era, imagine you felt a really strong negative response. Someone insulted you at work and you couldn't wait to talk to someone about it. But guess what? You have to wait. You have to wait till you get home or you could find someone to chat with. As you're waiting, 
time is tempering your emotions, right? And leading you to maybe relate differently to who you find to talk to about your experience than you would have if you were in the heat of the moment. And so I think one thing to be, to be aware of is that you might say things on social media right after an emotion is, is, is triggered. You might not say the same thing if we're two or three hours later. And so keep that in mind. The second thing to keep in mind about social media is social media tends to strip away all of the, the constraints that might also inhibit us from saying ugly things to other people that might get us into trouble. So if I'm really upset at someone at work and I find them to talk, you know, I confront them, I've got something, I've got their face in front of me. I could see how they're reacting to what I'm saying. And if I'm saying hurtful things, I'm registering that, right? There are these empathy cues that are built into how we communicate with other people directly that constrain my behavior. And social media tends to strip away those empathy cues, making it much easier for just an unfiltered rant. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think you have to look very far to see what negative consequences that can have for folks on both sides of the equation. I think it can be hugely damaging for people who are just unloading, but it can also really affect the targets of the unloading too. You know, cyberbullying is a huge problem nowadays. So social media is something I think you need to be very careful about when it comes to chatter. I think it can be helpful if you're tapping into the right networks for support, but you want to be really strategic about how you use it. Yeah, from what I'm gathering from you, I think it, it can be a helpful tool and I think it can be healthy to share your experience. But on in the same conversation, I think it's important to practice some of the other distancing tools you talk about first, maybe go for a walk, do the dishes, you know, maybe work th through the situation in your mind by distancing yourself or being that fly on the wall or, you know, constructively talking to a friend. Then a few hours later, maybe you can come back and say, do I really want, do I still want to share something on social media. And what I found in my experience, because I'd be the first to say, there's been times where I've reacted emotionally on social media. I think we all have. But what I found is that when I waited and distanced myself and just either did something else or just moved on to another task and came back to it, I was like, you know what? I don't even really care anymore. Exactly. I've, I've moved through it. I've gotten through it. And exactly. I and so I, I, we've talked um, a number of times so far in our conversation about the importance of creating distance and time to manage emotions, manage your thoughts, kind of mitigate the chatter. And one of the other things that I'm so glad you talked about was this, this notion of time traveling. Because my tagline for, for my life is remembering how far you've come, not how far you have to go. And you talked a lot about that in the book with in the context of journaling and just thinking about all the stuff that you have done in your life, where you've come and how important that is to, to feel better about yourself. What's the science, what does the science say with regards to why it's, it's so crucial and important to time travel and focus on the things that you have done in your life versus all the stuff you haven't? Well, you know, time travel is a really interesting topic. And, you know, I think we're living through a moment in time where time travel is somewhat out of fashion in the sense that we're often told to like be in the moment now as much yeah. as possible. And I got nothing against being in the moment. Like I love it at certain times, but it is not my goal to always be in the moment. And the reason for that is the human brain evolved to allow us to travel in time. This is like a feat of evolution that we are not just always in the moment responding to things that happen to us. We can actually go into the past, savor our victories, 
learn from our mistakes. We could travel into the future. We could fantasize about potentials, about future possibilities. Like this is an amazing skill. This is an amazing thing we possess, this thing being the mind and our ability to travel in time. What often happens with time travel is chatter, right? Like we, we jump into the mental time travel machine to, you know, work through why we're feeling upset about things we did or, or to like, you know, we're worried about things in the future and the mental time travel machine gets stuck. It's like we get stuck in the past, we get stuck in the future. So one solution that people advocate is, okay, we'll just stay in the present when that happens. (laughs) Right. And sure you can do that. And that can be productive at times, but, but I think, we have more possible ways of intervening. So what I'm trying to advocate is let's not, let's not just stop time traveling. Let's figure out how to do it more effectively. How do we empower people to travel in time without getting stuck? And that's what the book is all about. That's what those tools are about. And there's no question. There's a lot of data showing that if people can flexibly go back and forth in time, that they can benefit from it. And journaling is, is one, one way of doing that for sure. I think there's, it's so beneficial. And I think like you said, there's a way to do it. And there's a way not to do it. I think we were talking earlier about just the, the problems that come with just focusing solely on your past, because when you do that, you're not able to make that transition to say, okay, like what have you learned? How far have you come? What things have you done? How have you changed from those moments to where you are now? And the same thing goes for the future. If you're constantly focusing on the future and saying, yeah, you know, I know my life's going to be better five years from now. And you focus on what it's going to look like and all that. And you stay there. Then you forget to focus on, okay, like, well, how, how am I going to get there? How am I going to actually move through all of this? So I think, like you said, there's a way that it can be constructive and not destructive and not destructive. And that goes back to, okay, like, how can you move through? How can you use these, these moments of time interchangeably? How can you, how can you transition from the past to the present and from the present to the future and so on and so forth? So we've, we've done, we've taken a lot of time to talk about mitigating chatter and how to get out of the slump when you're in these toxic thoughts, these, these negative patterns of bad thoughts, bad behaviors that go on in your mind. I want to talk now about, as we close our conversation, like how you can use your inner voice to your advantage. So let's just say there's no chatter and all you're left with is just, you're flatlined. What are some things people can do to use their inner voice that's inside of them to make sure that it can be used to better their life and get better each and every day? Well, you know, I think use it to, to simulate and plan. And I mean, this is, this is incredible. I couldn't imagine like living life without being able to like think about what are the, the tasks that lie ahead? How am I going to respond and, and, and put myself in that experience and then rehearse how what's going to happen what am i going to say and do use that inner voice to control yourself use it to you know you know like we we often think of control as something we do when we're we're stuck but control can be really helpful for persevering and thriving so you know i was on vacation and i went to play um mini golf with my kids and family in a of course, socially distanced, responsible way. I'm not a golfer. Um, I'm not a mini golfer either, but I'll tell you what, I was motivated to do well on that mini golf game because there was family pride involved. And so I use self-talk there to like, all right, Ethan, hit the ball, you know, like coach myself through the act without getting stuck about, oh, am I squeezing the racket too tight? the club. You see, I could, you could tell I'm not a golfer by the fact that I call the thing a racket and not a club. So, uh, you know, I, I would say 
your inner voice is going to come online naturally as you navigate your life. I wouldn't try to overthink it too much. You know, use that voice to make sense of your experiences and storify your life. Use it to control yourself. Use it to to rehearse things. If if those are the context in which your inner voice is perking up, you're doing really well because you're using a tool that is serving you well. I think you want to just get people in that space and then they should be doing just fine. If they find themselves going down the chatter rabbit hole, use the tools we talk about in the book to get out of it, to free up this tool for these other purposes. Yeah, that makes total sense. Cause like you said, like your inner voice is always going to be there. I think you said in the book, we have like 4,000 thoughts that go through our head a minute or something like that. Is that, is well, that true? Well, well, yeah. Yeah, we're capable of talking to ourselves much quicker than we can uh, talk to other people out loud. The reason for that is we don't always talk to ourselves in full sentences, right? We always, we talk to ourselves sometimes in in a more compressed speech, right? And like, it's kind of like, imagine sometimes you take notes and you understand the meaning of those notes, written notes. So we're often thinking to ourselves in notes and it's the equivalent of many, many words per minute. So we can talk to ourselves really fast and, and that serves us really well. Mm, no, that makes sometimes, sense. Some, sometimes, not others when it's chatter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that makes total sense. And so the last thing I wanted to ask you when it comes to self-talk and positive self-talk, is there any time where positive self-talk can be destructive? Like, you know, toxic positive. There's a lot about toxic yeah, positivity. Totally. I, I think the question shouldn't be about it's, you know, chatter is different from negative self-talk. Chatter is, again, this kind of perseveration over negative things, getting stuck in the thought loops, which go over and over and over again. Negativity in small doses is, is I, I like to call it, elegantly adaptive. We evolved to experience negative emotions for a reason. It serves a function. Like when I um, put my hand on the stove and get burned, I pull my hand away. Really useful to be able to experience pain. Same thing for anxiety, right? Like experiencing a little dose of anxiety when I remember I have to do something a week from now, that motivates me to prepare for that activity. Very, very helpful. We would not want to live a life without any negativity. So I think, well, you know, when you hear people say you just want only positive self-talk, only positive feelings that's not a formula I don't think for a successful life because without the negative stuff, we really can't thrive and persevere. What we need to figure out how to do is experience negative emotions though, without getting stuck in them. And that's what the book is all about. Awesome. I'm glad you said that because I think there's, there's some people that they just want their life to be positive all the time. And in reality, number one, it's not realistic. And it's from the negative experiences we have in life that how we learn, we grow, we develop resilience, we develop our perseverance muscles, and we become better human beings as a result of it, right? We didn't get to where we are today as human beings without experiencing hardship in our lives, without experiencing exactly setbacks. Right. And we need that to be able to grow stronger. I mean, what's it called? Like hormesis? Is that the right term where you you challenge yourself and you stress yourself in order to become stronger mentally, physically, and emotionally. So Ethan, this has been awesome. I've learned a lot in our conversation. I got a lot out of your book. I think people are going to get a lot of our, out of our conversation. They're going to learn to mitigate the voice in their head as best as they can so that it doesn't lead to more destructive patterns, more destructive behaviors and decisions. And they can use this to better their relationships with themselves, with other people and the way they live their life. So if people want to learn more about you, 
I know your book's available wherever books are sold and you're on social media. Where can people find out more about you if they want to connect with you? They could go to my website, www.ethancross.com. It's cross with a K, K K-R-O-S-S. And they can learn about me, the book. They could take a a quiz to see how well they know their inner voice uh, and lots of other fun stuff. Awesome. I invite people to take that quiz because I think you'll learn a lot. I took it. I, I got some questions wrong, so which meant that I had some work to do and reading more in the book to, to learn like more about the inner voice and how to use it and what the, the truths are about it. And I encourage people to, to not only follow Ethan and check out his website, buy his book. It's fascinating. It's filled with not only a bunch of science that's easy to understand, but different tactics and tools that you can implement right now. Um, to better yourself and change the way that you handle stress, change the way that you handle your emotions and the chatter inside of you. So once again, wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.